So, how's the sound? Is that loud enough in the back? Good. Okay. Uh, so it's um, nice to see you all here. I don't think I've said much since the first night of the retreat. So I thought maybe I would say something tonight. <laughs> you know, just to be a little more personal on the group level. And... Um, when I was contemplating the talk today, I started with um, a very uh, familiar question, which is, what are we doing here? And, and I mean that quite sincerely. It's, I think it's a really valid question to contemplate regularly, what are we doing here? <clears throat> um, and in my experience and in my understanding, my view, uh, what we're doing here is both very simple. It's very simple what we're doing here. And it's surprisingly paradoxical, even though it's very simple. And really, if I, if I talk about this simplicity, I could just keep getting simpler because we're not doing anything. <laughs> and, and that is so unfamiliar to us in our modern world and as human beings, right? We're so used to doing so much. And the Dharma is paradoxical because it starts us doing less and less and less to discover what's here to discover reality, the reality that's sitting in your seat. The reality of what is it to be thinking, feeling, having sensations, hearing sounds, smelling things, tasting, touching. What is that? That not only what is happening, but what is it that knows what's happening? And how is that understood to be a vehicle or doorway or gateway to waking up and discovering the potential of what it is for each of us, each one, what it is to be a human being? What's the potential available for us as humans? And so, again, what I think we're doing here is very simple, like we're just being here. And, and really, we're not doing much, right? Have you noticed that? <laughs> sitting, walking, sitting, walking, sitting, walking, maybe a meeting with the teacher. That's very, that's really exciting. <laughs> you know, just because something's happening, right? And then, you know, and then eating, and then bathroom, and then sitting, it's, it's not much. And that not much is paradoxically magical. What it begins to reveal about ourselves and reality. And I believe the Buddha would say 
that it starts to reveal something about what happens when we let go of our usual way of being and freedom starts to come from that letting go of the usual, of the familiar, of the habitual way that we understand reality. And of course, that means understand ourselves also, because we are reality. Reality's not just out there. We, we are reality at the same time. Reality is all around and everywhere. And the Buddha, in his very simple way, when he, when he was asked about what he was teaching, he, he put it even more simply. He said, I'm teaching suffering and the end of suffering. And then everything else, like you ever go into those in bookstores, and of course most people don't go into bookstores anymore, but... but if you go into bookstores, there's a lot of Buddhist books, like really a lot. And, and I, I'm old enough, so I remember, oh, when there were four or five Buddhist books, and it was a big deal to find a Buddhist book. And now there's thousands of Buddhist books, and they're good. There are a lot of good books, but they're all talking about the same thing. <laughs> right? You know, as Spring was pointing at, she has one talk. Suffering and the end of suffering. That's, that's the deal. And of course, <clears throat> um, right at this moment, we're also aware of a certain Buddhist principle that is woven through the <coughs> Buddhist teachings. And it's the principle of anicca. Anicca, it's a Pali word for impermanence or change, right? And we're having the end of a year, right? I don't know if you know this, but this year, 2016, or what we've made up to be 2016, because, of course, somebody just made all that up, right? You all know that, I hope, <laughs> right? Because it's, it's not the end of 2016, you know, in other cultures or countries, right? In some it is, but that's a Western idea and based on a certain, you know, any, I, I don't want to go too far into that. It's just, <laughs> but, it, but it's true. It's just made up and, and we live by it because it helps us really based on the change of seasons, right? It's just, you know, there are four seasons and then the when the fifth season comes around, it's like the first one was, right? And so, so human beings said, "Oh, it's another one of those seasons, right? You know, it's spring or it's winter, or it's fall, it's summer." But one of the things about anicca or impermanence is impermanence reveals something about the nature of reality that this reality that we're sharing, it, and I, I know you all know this, but it, it's, I believe it's helpful to keep looking and getting closer to the fact that it's all impermanent, that there's nothing permanent here, right? 
we're, you know, we're here, uh, you know, we're going to be here for a few more days. I'm not pushing you out the door, but, but, you know, we're here for a little while. And of course, that's true about every part of our life is impermanent, right? It's here for a moment or a day or month or a year or a lifetime, and then it changes. It's not going to stay the same. So right now we're letting go, we're, and we're going to have a ritual tonight to let go of 2016. And I hope you can, uh, I hope you can let go of it. Because there's a new year coming. And the new year, the letting go is part of what allows the new to emerge. And so part of meditation practice itself teaches us to let go. Just, it can't help but do that. Because right, you notice you've been sitting and walking and they're not the same, right? Whatever happened yesterday, even if you want it to happen, won't necessarily happen. And if, it, if you don't want it to happen, it still might happen, right? That there's not so much control over reality. We have a little bit. We have some input. I don't want to deny that. But we're not in control of reality. And so letting go is considered one of the doorways to freedom in Buddhism. And impermanence teaches us a lot about that. Henry Miller, who was an American author, quite well known in the last century. I don't know how, how well known Henry Miller is. How many people know who Henry Miller is? That's a fair amount, yeah. So Henry Miller, who is a, secret, a hidden Buddhist, he, <laughs> he said, I know what the greatest cure is, the greatest cure it is to give up, to relinquish, to surrender, right? Which are all metaphors for letting go. I know what the greatest cure is. It is to give up, to relinquish, to surrender, so that our little hearts may beat in unison with the great heart of the world. That we let go of something and something else comes, really, a little more like what Spring was pointing at about the unity of reality of the world that is possible, the one-heartedness that we are all part of, that we are interconnected with. And, you know, it was, it's been lovely to meet with you all here both in little groups and now today individually. And, and uh, I was listening to people, and one of the themes that came up was the theme of sensitivity. And we've been talking about it. Oh, yeah, you'll get more sensitive if you meditate. You'll be more here. And that hereness is not just an idea or concept, but it means somatically, kinesthetically, experientially. When we get more here, we're actually sensitive beings. 
I think it was Alexis who was talking about how sensitive the body is, yeah, and all the nerve endings. And it's true. I mean, the whole fact that we see and hear and taste and touch, and it's if everything's relatively working, those are sensations that are happening, whether it's a visual sensation or an auditory auditory sensation or somatic, uh, you know, the touch, really, of just feel your body, what it's touching right now. We're sensitive to whatever it might be. It doesn't mean, oh, we're overly sensitive. We're just sensitive. We're a living beings, and we're often not in touch with the life or livingness of what's sitting right here. And is really, I mean, it's easy for me to say this because I feel it's just so beautiful to be around living beings. And uh, we, uh, my wife, who you know, um, <laughs> oh, got a dog, which I was like, you know, okay, you can get a dog, but I don't want a dog. I've, I've had dogs. <laughs> I won't be too, I won't tell them too much, but this is all true. And, uh, and so, and, um, and, but she really wanted a dog. So she got it. I said, great, you can get a dog. Keep it on your part of the house. <laughs> <laughs> and then she got a dog and dog and it's a beautiful dog and I like dogs I'm, I'm not an anti-dog I had a dog for 12 years in San Francisco walked him three times a day you know I was you know but it was a long time ago before you had to clean up after your dogs <laughs> so <laughs> this, this is all true and um and and I love my dog really very much, and uh, and still feel my love for him. He was a great dog, and um, and so we have this new dog, Grover, and, uh, and but it's what's beautiful, and really, and what I already see, I'm totally taken by him, even though he's not mine, and I don't have to walk him. <laughs> Is oh, there's a living being there, and that's magical because not not everything is living in the same way and a sentient being is really quite amazing and we are sentient beings and Grover is a sentient being in the dog form and it's amazing to see consciousness in another animal and then you you can relate to it and it's fun to relate to Grover (laughs) as long as I don't have to walk him (laughs) Uh, so, so uh, we were talking about the sensitivity today in the interviews and what it is to be even more sensitive. And we might not have any idea of how sensitive we might actually be as we get here fully. Because all kinds of information comes through that sensitivity. I mean, I'm talking about very basic, you know, what you, what one sees, hears, feels, tastes, touch, you know, but also, you, you ever walk into a room and you know what's going on with someone, you haven't said a word? That's a certain kind of sensitivity, and that's real. And, that, and one can get more sensitive. Some people are very sensitive that way. Some people are very intuitive that they... They're not even trying and they're knowing things because 
reality is more magical than we might assume, right? It's not just mechanical in the usual conventional way the world works. And so part of what we're doing here is waking up. Actually, I'd like to say that a little better. What we're doing here is waking up. We're waking up and discovering the Dharma and the Dharma sitting right in your seat. You are the Dharma. And this is where the Dharma is to be discovered for each of us. <clears throat> and so I was, um, I, I, this is a quote. This is from uh, Tan Jeff, Tanisaro Bhikkhu. And this is, and he's talking about how to understand freedom, nibbana, or nirvana is the is the Sanskrit term, and nibbana is the Pali term. And he said the bird, the Buddha's choice of the word nibbana, which literally means extinguishing the fire extinguishing the fire derives from the way the physics of fire was viewed at his time right so and i love that he says that because buddhism is very beautiful because it actually changes how it teaches based on time and place and what's appropriate for the time and place and i love that because it's not static it's not stiff that way it's alive to humans at their time, in their place, in their culture, in their world, in our world, really. So he's saying, right, nibbana, nirvana, which literally means extinguishing of fire, derives from the way the physics of fire was viewed at his time. And so at his time, in what was, you know, what is now India, but wasn't India then, um, as fire burned, it was seen as clinging to the fruit, to, the f- to its fuel. As fire burned, it was seen as clinging to its fuel in a state of entrapment and agitation. Right? So, you know, the fire, like if this was burning, you would see the flames, and the flames would be entrapped because of the fuel. Right? And, and, and it would be entrapped and ag- the fire was seen as agitated, right? And then, and when the fire went out, it let go of its fuel, right? It's not that the fuel let go of the fire. The fire let go of the fuel, growing calm and free. Thus, when the people of his time saw a fire going out, they did not feel like they were watching extinction. Rather, they were seeing a metaphorical lesson in how freedom can be attained by letting go. Freedom can be attained by letting go. And so part of our practice here Part of what we start to learn, part of what starts to happen pretty naturally as part of just being here, is starting to discern what letting go is and what is it, what isn't it, and what's the value of letting go. 
And I want to say a few things because a lot of what people talk about in the interviews and we've heard is, oh, whether they said it this way or not, it's like, oh, the freedom of when they've been able to let go of something, or I'm going to say it slightly differently, or the freedom when something's let go of them, right? And then there's release or relax or openness or simplicity or just being, right? And so when we're talking about letting go, it's not dissociating from something. It's not pushing something away. It's not denying something. It's not throwing something away. It's not getting over something. It's starting to see paradoxically that really there's nothing we can actually hold on to. That the holding on is a kind of habit that happens with certain experiences, certain ideas, certain beliefs, certain, you know, and, and, and I'm good at it. I hold on all the time, right? I get attached to things. I think it's got to be this way, you know. I'm, I'm sitting here wondering where all my colleagues are when the talk is supposed to start. You know, why aren't, why aren't they here on time? And, you know, and, and, then, and, you know, and, then, it's, and, then, and then something relaxes, and it's like, so what? <laughs> really? You know, so, you know, I, could, I, have, I still have total free. I can start without them. Right? Which is okay. Or I can just wait because it's a meditation retreat. It's, I don't, <laughs> you know, right? But, but something relaxes. I didn't do something. It just relaxed, right? The holding, the clinging, the grasping, the tightening, the habit. Let go. And really, mostly, it just lets often it lets go on its own. We can do some letting go. That, that happens. But at least for me, when I'm really attached to something, when I'm really clinging to something, I can't let go. I, no way. That would be great. You know, I would pay, right? <laughs> but that's not what I've seen works. Paradoxically, what works is being right with the experience and being aware of it and being aware of all the things I don't like or don't want or I have reactions to or, or you know, it works both ways or the things I want and I'm trying to keep and uh, it's got to stay this way, right? If I start to be aware, the awareness starts to have an impact on the habit, on the, and the word I want to use, I want to put in the room is there's a cathexis with something we're attached to, an idea about how it's supposed to be, right? And so it's not just an idea, it's not just a mental experience. And that's why I like the word cathexis, because cathexis points to an energetic connection to something, right? So I could say, oh yeah, I'm attached to, I want you to see that I'm a great teacher, right? That's an idea, right? 
And I could say, oh yeah, that's an idea. I'm, I'm just going to get rid of that idea. I don't care how you see me. Huh. <laughs> you know? No, there's some other emotional, uh, somatic, kinesthetic, energetic cathexis connection with that concept. And so you start, one starts to see how concepts aren't just concepts. They're, they also live on other layers of reality when we're attached to them or identified with them or we believe them. <clears throat> and so that's why I think paradox is so important in the Dharma. It's so important to see it's paradoxical letting go because we do it and we don't do it. It happens on its own. And it happens because we're nourishing the conditions that allow for release to reveal itself. And as we start to get here, as we start to land here, as we start to discover what is here, what is this experience, we start to open to reality, both what we know and what we don't know. And those are both very important understandings of practice, because because what what are we doing here if we're not knowing what's happening, right? Is that, everybody got that? I mean, I just want to be clear. I, I can't remember who was saying that. I think it was you, Spring, about saying naming the things or, you know, labeling. That's one way to do it. You know, it, it's about knowing what's here. Oh, an in-breath, an out-breath, you know, an ache a pain, fire in the knee, or, you know, or feeling angry, or sad, or bored, or interested. We start to know what's happening. And then at some points, we also see things happen, and we don't know what it is. And, and we're not sure what to do. There's some not knowing about what's happening. And that not knowing is actually very, very important part of practice. And I've said this many times in talks, but I like to say it. So um, there was a great book uh, by Krishnamurti, who was a teacher in the last century. And it was called Freedom from the Known. Freedom from the Known. And I liked that book so much that I never read it because he nailed it in the title, right? I mean, I didn't need to hear what he had to say about it. I just got it. Oh, that there's a way that what we know can obscure or veil the living experience because in any moment there's something we don't know also. One of my teachers, he would always say if... If there's no mystery, you're missing something. If there's no mystery in the experience, you're missing something. So, 
and, uh, and, uh, and the knowing and the not knowing are pointed at in Buddhism many, many times and in a very classic way. It's pointed in terms of self and what's called not-self. And it's often one of the harder pieces for people to understand because they think the Buddha said, oh, there's no self, which is not my understanding of what he said. The Buddha said there's self and self has its place and people have a self and the self is to be um, utilized in the service of freedom. And also one is to start to recognize what is self and what is not self. That is also here. And so you hear the paradox just of both of those are, and here's the good news, is they're both true. There's both self and there's both not self. And that's what's hard for our more rational minds where it's got to be A or B, right? Instead of A and B or neither A and B. Even more, uh, not so clearly defined in that way. So part of starting to relax, which we've used that term, which sometimes means, oh, everything in the body relaxes and the heart relaxes, but it also can mean there's a kind of opening to whatever's here, even if in why we can be relaxed with not being relaxed. We can open to being not relaxed. We cannot add on more more unrelaxation <laughs> to the unrelaxed experience. Boy, I hope that made some sense. <laughs> and, and what I'm trying to point at is the paradox of practice. And just letting ourselves be is not something we're used to. And so part of letting go is letting go of some of the doingness of human doingness, right? We're not actually called human doings, right? You all know that, right? We're called human beings. But there's so little training about the beingness of what it is to be a human. And so much training and the emphasis on the doingness of being a human. And so this letting go is counterintuitive for most of us or many of us. And Robert Frost, when he talked about working with difficulty and suffering, he said the best way out is always through. Right? The best way out is always through. It's not getting away from, it's not getting around, it's right through. And this is one of the great paradoxes of Dharma. And another, a tantric teacher said, if it is in the way, it is the way, right? And so that starts to help the judgments about things relax when we're having a hard time. If, it, if it's in the way, it is the way. And you're not doing it wrong. That's right, paradoxically, right? And it's, I can make it even simpler. Dukkha, suffering, leads to the end of suffering. They're connected. 
You don't get to the end of suffering without suffering. Right? And so it starts to take, at least for me, it takes away a little of the judgmental ideas like, oh, if I'm suffering, I've done it wrong, or I'm bad, or I'm stupid, or anything like that. Because in Buddhism, suffering is one of the three characteristics of reality, right? And I'm, I'm talking about them. I haven't named it now, but I'll say it. So I'm talking about not-self is one of the characteristics of reality. And anicca, impermanence, is one of the characteristics of reality. And also suffering is one of the characteristics of reality. And it doesn't mean it's never said, oh, everything is suffering. It's just saying it's not perfect in the way we think it should be perfect, right? Or it, it, meaning everything's going to happen the way we want. It won't. Have you noticed that? Right? That's just normal, right? Have you noticed people don't do what you want them to do? Right? I mean, I, mean, I wish they would do what I wanted them to do, but they don't. And, and it's normal. And, and so, so starting to come into alignment with reality, with the way things are, with the truth, and letting go of our beliefs, our ideas, we have to have, it has to be my way, this way. You know, I'm always like, good luck, do, do your best, but then see what's true because that'll tell us how to work skillfully with our lives and reality. And people often say they have trouble letting go. And anybody ever notice that? Okay, that's very normal. And there's a beautiful, really tantric teacher named Devi. And, and I'm going to read from her. She said this, she said, She said, um, people say I've had trouble letting go. She said, that's normal. Everybody wants to let go. But how do you let go if you don't hold things? Right? How do you let go if you don't hold things, if you don't touch things in full consciousness? How do you let go if you don't hold things, if you don't touch things in full consciousness with a totally open heart, right? So now she's pointing at what we're asking you in Dharma practice to practice with awareness and kindness, with whatever's here, right? And she says, how do you let go if you don't hold on, if you don't touch things in full consciousness with a totally open heart? The first thing is having the experience of touch, of profound contact with things, with the universe, without a lot of mental commotion. Meaning, so you're, you're experientially really there with the experience. And she says, if you let go before touching de- deeply, that can bring out a lot of bring on a lot of turmoil. Many beginning yogis make that mistake. They let go before taking hold, right? And that's a kind of mechanical letting go. Okay, I'm not going to hold on to this. You know, I'm not going to hold on to this, right? Instead of seeing, oh, what is it to hold? What am I holding on to? 
what's happening here? What's the experience? You know, and feeling the feeling. Oh, I, you know, I, I love this, you know, bell hitter. <laughs> you know, and it's a good one, right? It's, it's beautiful. You know, so I, there's some there's some feeling for it, but having the feeling doesn't mean then we can't let go. We let go with the feeling. She says it this way. She says, many beginning yogis make that mistake. They let go before taking hold. The heart is never opened, right? They enter into a sterile void and remain imprisoned. But when you touch deeply, you no longer need to let go. When you touch deeply, you no longer need to let go. That occurs naturally. And, and I'm going to add on here. Why does it inc- occur naturally? And so I'll give you a little koan. Koan is a Zen term meaning a, 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 a question you can't really answer with your mind. But maybe you can. You can try. So here's my question for you to consider. What can you hold on to? Really? Just sit with that for a minute and see what comes. What can you hold on to really? And I'm going to answer, even though you may disagree with me. I don't see that there's anything I can actually hold on to. I can be connected to things energetically, even when I don't want to be, but I'm not really holding on to it. I'm connected. I'm identified. I'm clinging. I, I believe something bad will happen or if I don't keep something or get rid of something. And something bad might happen, but I can't. It's not sta- life is not static so that I could hold on to this you know, how long could I hold on to this bell, really? Right? Or how long can I hold on to anything, really? Right? Whether, I mean, I'm old enough now, and it's kind of great being old uh, these days, because I've had many lives in this life. Right? Because, you know, in Buddhism they talk about past lives. Oh, I've had a ton of them already in this life. And it's just wild to see whole worlds I lived in and was part of and loved and devoted myself to as a musician or as a radical or as a therapist. And they're gone. Those people are, are not around anymore or that what I did is not around or who I was is not around in the same way. And it's just, it's, and, I, and it's still, it's all good. I'm not, I'm not complaining about it. It's just quite interesting that that's part of the nature of reality is that, at least in my experience, and you'll keep looking at your own because that's how, how you pra- one practices well is to look in your own direct experience and see if there's anything we can actually hold on to. And so that's why when people were asking in the Q&C today, in the questions, about also about working with positive experiences, right, that we might get 
hold on to or attached to or identified with, that we can we see, oh, we can't do that either. And we want to do it, but it doesn't put us in alignment with reality, with the way things are. And so William Blake, beautiful poem, which is a few hundred years old, he said, he who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy. He who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy. But he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. Beautiful understanding of reality, of coming into harmony with the way things are. Because we are part of the way things are. And that's when we see the mystery and the magicalness and the wonder and the beauty of what's right here. Like what is seeing me? What is hearing me? What is listening to your thoughts? Right? What is that? It's said, it's been said in the Zen tradition, knowledge is learning something every day. Knowledge is learning something every day. Wisdom is letting go of something every day. Wisdom is letting go of something every day. That we start to relax with reality which we are not in control of. And we have some impact on reality and that's great, it's beautiful. Not, um, let me say it this way, there are many things that human beings do that is totally beautiful, how we impact reality. Uh, and here, I mean, just personally, this is totally personal, but uh, somebody, um, I had a chronic illness for 40 years and Western medicine came up with a medicine to cure me. And, um, and first it was too expensive. It was $100,000. And I was like, okay, I'm not paying that. <laughs> I don't have that. <laughs> it's not, but, um, but it was real. But then somebody told me um, how I could hustle the insurance to get the medicine. And I went and checked out that thing. And then some, somebody else, a beautiful woman doctor in, in Oakland, she was just beautiful, bodhisattva person. She said, oh, you don't have to go, go here. Talk to this guy. And he got it this way and talk to him and how to do it. And I did. And, and it was still a little hustling. But I went and to hustle my insurance. And I didn't have to hustle. They said, oh, yeah, 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 oh, sure. Four days later, they were giving me the medicine. It had come down in price from $100,000 to $70,000. This is for 60 pills, which in my radical um, past life, I would just fucking scream about that shit, <laughs> really, because it's, 
I hate medicine being capitalistic when it should be for the benefit of all people. But anyhow, so they insurance paid for it and and I got cured in two months. Now that's just amazing that human beings can even do that, right? That we can take our time, energy, resources and come up with medicine for things. That's just amazing. So <clears throat> so I'm not sure where I was, how I got there, but <laughs> it's okay. But um, uh, so coming into alignment with reality, we start to see some of the beauty, not just the suffering. Suffering and the end of suffering also, and the letting go of suffering, of the disappearance of suffering. And I'm not saying, oh, then we're all going to be happy all the time. It's great to actually read the Buddha and read how cranky he was, even after he was totally and completely enlightened, <laughs> like, like nobody else for 5,000 years or something, you know, or however many years, really. But still, he could complain, really. I mean, <laughs> totally. And he had a bad back at the end of his life. And he said, oh, yeah, I feel like a, a bound-up cart, you know, like if you have an old cart and it's falling apart, you bind it so you can keep riding in the cart. He said, oh, yeah, that's how my body feels. And, but one of the... But he, but he was free at the same time, even when he had an old body at some point. And so I'll just say couple more things about letting go. Um, here. Because it's pointing, something's being pointed at. Well, I'm going to tell you two little stories, Buddhist stories about letting go. The first one's about Bahia of the Bark Cloth. Bahia of the Bark Cloth. So I hope you get what kind of gear he's wearing, right? Bark cloth. It was cool in his time, bark cloth. And he was living in the wilderness and he was trying to wake up, but it wasn't happening. And at some point he asked the devas, the gods, goddesses, oh, what do I need to do? And, and they say, oh, there's somebody who's awake. You should go hang out with him. Of course, I'm putting this a little more in my language than you read it in the text, but it's I'm, I'm accurate. And so, and so, and he hears, oh, there's a Buddha, there's an awakened one, and so he's like, okay, I'm going to go. And then, in like, um, in in uh, phantasmagorical time, he walks a few hundred miles overnight, <laughs> right, because of his intention and his aspiration to wake up and he goes and he and he gets there and he's walking and he's get there right when the monks and and nuns who are around the buddha are, are getting ready to go for alms rounds right to get their food and so but and he asks where's the buddha and they say oh the buddha is getting ready for alms rounds and here there's where he is and and he goes over and he says to him um hi uh, Please teach me the Dharma, teach me the Dharma. And the Buddha said, okay, I will, but a little later, 
okay? And, and then, and Bahia is very determined. I, I love Bahia, really. He's for real guy. And so he says, well, oh, oh, uh, you know, venerable one, uh, we don't know when you or I are going to die, so please could you teach me now? And the Buddha said, no, no, I'm, I'll teach you after. I'm going to go for alms rounds and, you know, or, or maybe he just said, oh, I'm hungry, I'll teach you a little later. And, uh, and then, and, and uh, Bihia said, oh, no, but we don't know what's going to happen ever, so please teach me now. And if you ask a third time in Buddhism, that is a magic number with the Buddha. So, so he says, okay, and he gives him a very brief teaching. And the teaching is this, he says, practice this way, very simply, in the seen, just what is seen. In the heard, just what is heard. In the uh, felt, just what is felt. In the cognized, just what is cognized. If you practice in this way, in this very simple way, in the seen, just the seen, in the heard, just the heard, in the felt, just the felt, in the cognized, just the cognized, you will not be here, nor there, nor in between. Just this is the end of suffering. Right? Right? You will not be here, you will not be there, nor in between. Just this is the end of suffering. And so he gives this very simple teaching, right? Like just right now, for you, you can play with it. In the scene, just the scene. No add-on. Don't add anything on. It's just seeing and hearing and feeling and tasting and smelling and touching and thoughts, but not adding anything on to any of it. Right? So it's letting go of the add-ons, right? And Bahia, who's very devoted, he's done a lot of his own practice, he goes off and he gets, uh, it's an odd story, but this is true, in, at least in the story, he gets killed by a cow. <laughs> it's true, that's, that's the story, but, you know, I'm like, a cow? Yeah, a cow. He gets killed by a cow, and then... And then later that evening, the disciples say, oh, what happened to him? And the Buddha's having a transmission with him then, right? And says, oh, here's where he is. Because I, I, the Buddha has a lot of um, cities, powers, so he can know where somebody is after they've died. And he's free, right? And he said, oh yeah, he practiced and he, he was a good practitioner even though it was very short and he woke up. So that's a little bit about letting go of our ideas about how things are supposed to happen and what is possible in this amazing reality of being human. And then the last piece I'll read, which is personally something I also really like in the Dharma. It's the advice to Anattapindika. And I like this because Anattapindika is one of our lay fathers. He's one of the lay people who lived at the time of the Buddha, was very involved with the Buddha, was very generous. He was a wealthy man, Anattapindika. He gave the first land for a retreat center, for a monastery, for the Buddha and his followers, right? 
Jetta's Grove. It's very famous in the in the texts. And at some point, but he doesn't live with the Buddha, but he's devoted, 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 practices, does his thing. And at some point, uh, he's sick. And the Buddha says, oh, he sends his two top disciples, go see how Anathapindaka is. How's he doing? And he's not doing well. And then there's a lot of texts about what it's like to not be doing well, which all of us will discover at some point. So you don't have to hear that. Um, but then, um, and so they talk to him and, and they get that, oh, he's dying and he's close to death. And so they start to give him teachings that normally they don't give to lay people yet. And the Buddhas, these are teachings that are given to monastics. And so they start to, and this is Sariputta and Ananta are giving him teachings. And they're saying, they're saying, train yourself thus. I will not cling to the eye and my consciousness will not be dependent on the eye. I will not cling to the ear. I will not cling to the nose. I will not cling to the tongue. I will not cling to the body. I will not cling to the mind. And my consciousness will not be dependent on the mind. And then they go, it goes on. There's a lot listed. I'll read you a few more, a little bit. They say, here's how you should train. So they're giving him some very deep teachings about not clinging to different parts of experience. They say, I will not cling to the earth element, which is, part. if, if we each look carefully, we each have the earth, air, fire, water, right here in our somatic experience. And you can feel it, the solidity of the earth element or the fluidity of the um, water element or the uh, heat of the fire element or the movement of the air element. And so he says, he says, you should train yourself thus. I will not cling to the earth element. I will not cling to the water element. I will not cling to the fire element. I will not cling to the air element. I will not cling to the space element, right? And my, and I will not cling to the consciousness element. And my consciousness will not be dependent on the consciousness element. And then they keep going on. I, I will not cling to material form. I will not cling to feeling. I will not cling to perception. I will not cling to formations, mental formations. I will not cling to consciousness. And my consciousness will not be dependent on consciousness. And I will not cling to, and then he gives uh, very deep, um, really certain kinds of blissful experiences that can happen in meditation. I will not cling to the base of infinite space, which you can have these experiences in meditation, and they're, they're cool. I, I will not cling to the base of infinite consciousness. I will not cling to the base of nothingness. I will not cling to the base of neither perception nor non-perception. And you hear these, these are hard to understand, right? Like what is perception or non-perception? Um, don't try to figure it out with your mind sit a little longer because <laughs> they can come in very deep meditation, usually in longer retreats. And, and, but he's just telling them, I, you know, he's saying, don't even cling to bliss is part of what he's saying 
or to these deep levels of samadhi which come with meditation practice at, at times. I will not cling to... Um, I will, And then he keeps going on, I will not cling to this world and my consciousness will not be dependent on this world and I will not cling to the world beyond. Right? And on and on he keeps going and they say... And then they get more and more. You train yourself thus. I will not cling to what is seen, heard, sensed, cognized, encountered, sought after, examined by the mind, etc., etc. And they go on. And he weeps. And Anatta who's listening to them, and he's practicing while he's listening, he starts to weep. And they say to them, then the Venerable Ananda said, are you foundering, householder? Are you sinking? Are you dying, is what he's saying. And he says, no, I'm not, I'm not dying. I'm not foundering, venerable Ananda. But although I have long waited upon the teacher, capital T means the Buddha, but I've long waited upon the Buddha and his, and his uh, uh, practitioners, the bhikkhus, right? I have never heard such talk of the Dharma before. Right? And he's weeping because he's moved by the profundity of what he's hearing. And they said such talk is not usually given to lay people, to householders. Right, It's usually given to monastics. And then he says, and he's speaking for us. Right, He's, he's, he's speaking, what he did is change the Buddha's teachings by what he said. He said, then Venerable Sariputta, let such talk on the Dharma be given to lay people clothed in white, householders. There are householders with little dust on their eyes that, that are wasting away through not hearing such Dharma, such talk on the Dharma. And there will be those who will understand this Dharma. Right? And then they, they, they leave, Sariputta and, and Ananda leave, and then Anattapindaka dies, and he ends up in a Buddhist heaven, right? Meaning he had a certain kind of awakening. And I love that. And, and all they were telling him, did you hear what they were saying? Don't cling to this. Don't cling to that. Don't cling to what we're used to, to our world, to everything. And that that's possible is good to know. I'm not saying, oh, you have to do that tonight. But really what I'm suggesting is that is possible for each and every one of us to see that letting go is possible. And it's not a bad thing, right? Because the, the Buddha let, let go and lived another 40 years and became the CEO of a big organization, <laughs> right? Even though he totally let go. And so we have the time and place here to practice what is it to wake up or to discover who and what we are as fully as possible. So let's sit for a moment. I'll end with a very short quote, but Let's sit together for a minute and just relax, meaning don't do anything. Your mind might be going a little or you might have feelings or your body might be tired or 
and just be, be aware of whatever is here. And you don't have to do anything to be aware. You're already aware. Last quote from the Buddha, who said, the purpose of the holy life, of the life of practice, does not consist in acquiring alms or honor or fame or in gaining anything. The unshakable deliverance of heart, the unshakable deliverance of heart that indeed is the goal of practice. That is its essence. That is the goal of the Dharma. you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.